what Paul says here, specifically a few of these verses that Paul um, writes, with, with what happens on this day of Pentecost. The Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 is where you go and read the birthday of the church, the day that we celebrate. And, and I encourage you, if you're not familiar with it, to go read that chapter in Acts. Make that your, your homework today. But, um, but in Acts chapter 2, if you remember, it begins, the disciples are there in the upper room. They're kind of um, secluded, kind of in hiding. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, the tongues of fire, and they are really propelled into the streets of Jerusalem to begin to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at the end of Acts chapter 2, it says that on that day, 3,000 were added to their number. I can't imagine preaching. And Paul and Peter, I should say, gives this powerful sermon before that. I mean, 3,000 that come to faith. What an amazing impact. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what we celebrate today. That's why many of us are wearing red um, to celebrate Pentecost. Some of us even go the extra mile. I want to let you know how dedicated I am to Pentecost. Yesterday, um, Tony and I went um, kayaking with Jim and Jill Rogers. And uh, I put on my sunscreen. And I did it standing up. So, you know, your shorts, like, hang here. And then I sat in the kayak all day, and the shorts came up to here. So right now, I'm sporting red for Pentecost. I'm glowing right now. Um, so I just, that's how dedicated I am to Pentecost. Um, or stupid. You can say that, too. Um, but anyway, that's, that's what we celebrate today. As a, as a church, and we want to hear what Paul says. Um, Gretchen, I'm going to pick this up at verse 9. I forgot to tell John that, so if you'll just kind of scroll ahead. We're going to pick up at Romans chapter 8, uh, beginning at verse 9. Thank you. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it's not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those of you who are led by the Spirit of God are, and hear this, the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. And we cry, and by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Brothers and sisters, we pray now here God's blessing on the reading of his word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, your word given to us, that it speaks your truth. And I pray these words, inspired by your Holy Spirit, that they too would speak your truth. That we would grow in faith. And that by your power at work within us, you would do with us as you will. We pray in Jesus. Amen. So the spirit that does not give us a spirit of fear. That's the focus this morning. No, no um, tough detective work needing to figure that out. If you looked at the title of the sermon, we're talking about fear today. And I love it when illustrations just pop right up during the course of the week as I'm preparing for a sermon. And we got a wonderful one this week on Friday night in Tampa, Florida, in Bush Gardens. 
when the Sheikra stopped right there. Did you see the video of this this week? If you didn't, if you didn't see the news, Friday night, um, I think it was Friday, I don't know, sometime toward later in the week, the, the biggest roller coaster in Bush Gardens, the Sheikra, two cars stopped right at the very, very top, got stuck. One of them on the flat part as it's getting ready to go toward the drop, but the other one right at the top. I mean, right, but it's still on the incline, so you're still in that horizontal position. And, um, and as I'm thinking about fear, I thought, there you have it, because that, for many of us, would be a worse nightmare. That would be an absolute nightmare. Now, I like roller coasters. I love Shikra. I can ride it all day long, strapped in, and it goes from beginning to end the way it's intended to. But there is nothing more petrifying to me. Well, I shouldn't say nothing, but one of them would be in that position because if you saw the video of it, they had to go up. The employees had to holster in. Then they had to holster all the riders in so that they could get them out of the chairs and onto one of the little cars to then take them back down to the bottom. Just, I'd pass out. It'd be over. <laughs> They'd need me holstered in. So I'm, I'm thinking about that, and I'm thinking that in relationship to fear. But, but here's what, what I found so fascinating. We know this, that there were some who were up there who, no big deal. Some of you here today, that doesn't scare you at all. If you're, it just it wouldn't be a problem for you. You could handle that. And as I'm watching that, I'm watching them do this. And, and some that I know were probably like me that were absolutely terrified. And some of the employees and stuff that were up there, and it was just no big deal. And isn't that the nature of fear? It really is a relative thing as far as what scares us. There's a story of a, a construction worker in New York City that used to get up 15 and 20 stories um, on construction sites. And, and whether it was raining or whether it was windy, he'd just walk on one of those construction beams with no problems. And somebody asked him one day when he was on the ground, they said, how'd you end up in a job like this? He said, well, I used to be a school bus driver, but my nerves gave out. <laughs> you know? And that, I mean, some of, I look out there and I see some of our teachers, some of what our teachers do. That would scare us to death. You know? I mean, it's just, it is, it's a relative thing, fear. And, and I called the sermon Fear Factor because I was just thinking about that show years ago. You know, and that was the thing. Find the things that people were ultimately scared of. And there was gross stuff in that, so they'd eat stuff and do stuff. But eventually, most people have something. Most of us have something that we're afraid of. It's, 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 not, a universal, it's not universally applied, but it's universally true. And when I say applied, it means we're not all scared of the same things, thank goodness. But, but most of us know what it's like to be afraid, to experience fear. So how do we, what do we do with that? What do we do with that? Because the Scripture says that God has not given us a spirit that makes us slaves again to fear. So do we recognize and do, are we willing to name fear so that God can begin to work? Kids can do this. They, they know. Kids will talk with kids all the time about what are some of the things that they're afraid of. But sometimes as we grow up, we kind of, well, we don't outgrow fear, but we don't talk about it so much. You know, with kids, I was thinking about this with, with children, you know, I talked a few weeks ago about darkness and, and the nightlight, you know, the nightlights that chase away the dark and, and makes the dark a little less scary. But as I was kind of thinking a little bit deeper about that, I thought, you know, when, when Ryan and Cassie were little, when they were, when they were small, it wasn't just that we had nightlights in the house so that if they woke up, there was a little bit of light. But the nightlights needed to be strategic. The nightlights needed to not just be in their bedroom. But we needed to make sure we had enough light throughout the house so that if they woke up afraid, they could get from their bedroom to our bedroom, right? 
They could get from their bedroom safely to our bedroom. Why? Because when a child is little, where's the safe place to be? In the arms of mom or dad. In the bed of mom or dad. To be able to climb in and to find comfort and protection and safety there. Well, what's true when we're three or four is true when we're 40, 50, and beyond. It's just who we understand as mom and dad tends to be a little different. He does not give us a slave, a spirit that makes us a slave to fear. But we're children of God, invited to call out to him, Abba, Father, Daddy. We're invited into the arms of the one who frees us from that bondage to fear. Now, before we can go there, though, we have to kind of get to the point that, like we talked about, we all have fears. We all, I, I, I believe, I don't, I've never met anybody who, who isn't afraid of anything. In fact, I don't think that's healthy. Fear is healthy. I mean, there's a reason that we have an instinct to fear. It's meant to keep us from doing some of the dumb things we sometimes do. I mean, think about it. We all have our stories of sometimes we should have listened to fear a little bit. I remember being with my brother-in-law in Hawaii years ago, and we were standing on, I call them some cliffs. They weren't really, really high cliffs, but we were um, at the Pacific Ocean. We were in the edge, and, and the waters were kind of crashing in, and neither one of us had ever swam in the Pacific. So we thought, this is a good time, let's jump in. And we both had a little bit of fear about doing that, that we should have listened to. But we jumped in. And then we didn't know how to get out. I mean, it was, it, we, we were lucky. There's no, there's no tragic end to this story, and there's no broken bones. But we jumped in, and all of a sudden we're getting beat up by the waves, and our wives are looking at us like, you're imbeciles. And... Um, <laughs> And we're scrambling trying to figure out how to get out because we didn't listen to that little bit of fear in our spirit that said there might be a reason this isn't a good idea. Fear has a place. But we also have to name it. We have to recognize it because fear can have a very um, detrimental effect on us emotionally, physically, and spiritually. And so we recognize fear. And the question is, and the reason that we do that, the reason we have to name it is because then we, we recognize that we have one of two responses to it. One is denial. We can just deny it. Not that it doesn't exist, we just try to pretend it doesn't. We just try to ignore it, we won't name it, um, we, we kind of live in our own little reality world. Uh, I was listening to a preacher not too long ago, I was talking about a friend of his that lived in New York City. And he said, what do you love about living in New York? And he said, it's freedom. You can go wherever you want, you can do whatever you want, you can dress however you want, you can eat whatever you want. And then he got up in the apartment and he walked to the door and he closed the door, and he put on the chain, and he clicked the first deadbolt, and he clicked the second deadbolt. Then he set the alarm and said, make sure you don't go outside during the alarm, or I'll heck will break loose, and you'll probably end up shot. You know? And it was this, this contrast, he was like, between this celebrated freedom, but this reality that there was not nearly as free as he thought he was. You know, that there was this fear also that he had, that he just was unwilling to kind of name and, and recognize. We can fall into that in, in more substantial ways, that we just, we deny our own fear. We just pretend it's not there. And that's not healthy. And then the flip side is that we then face it. And the question is, how do we face it? And there's healthy and unhealthy ways to do that. I was reading um, some of the, some, I don't know if they're urban legends or not. I don't know how true these stories are, but there were some stories that G. Gordon Liddy supposedly tells about his own childhood and learning how to face his fears. He talked about being afraid of rats. Being afraid of rats, so he forced himself to kill and cook and eat a rat to face his fears. I don't know that that's healthy. Um, I'm pretty sure it's not. 
He talked about being afraid of lightning storms. So he said he strapped himself to the top of a tree during a lightning storm and rode it out to face his fears. I don't think that's a good idea. I think that's the healthy fear God gives us. I don't recommend that. But, but how do we face it? How do we, how do we learn um, to face our fears? Because fear has one of the negative realities of fear, one of the implications of fear upon our lives is that when it becomes to rule us, when it has too much power and authority in us, it limits and confines us. It limits and confines us. Rather than being able to, to grow into the, the fullness of who God's created and called us to be, fear causes us to recoil and causes us to, to step back and away from, from the fullness of the life that, that God has called us to. There's a, a name of an athlete I came across in, in researching and preparing for the sermon. A, a young man, um, it, this goes back to the 60s, but his name was Billy Green. Billy Green was a star athlete at Colorado State University. Graduated in 1963, and he was drafted by, the, by Red Arbach and the Boston Celtics. If, you, if you're a basketball fan and you know basketball history, and this was in the, the glory years of the Celtics, he was the eighth overall pick. So it tells you what kind of an athlete he was, what kind of a star he was. In fact, he was such a good athlete that he was not only drafted by the Boston Celtics um, in basketball, he was drafted by the major leagues, by the Boston Red Sox as a baseball player, and drafted by the Dallas Cowboys in the NFL. Three teams, leagues drafted him, but he wanted to play basketball. So he went to training camp with the, with the Boston Celtics. He impressed as they expected him to. And then before the start of the season, he walked into Red Arbach's office, and he started to ask about his travel arrangements. And Arbach looked at him, what do you mean your travel arrangements? And in the course of the conversation, he realized that Billy Green was deathly afraid of flying. And he thought he would be able to take trains to each of the games. In his senior year at Colorado State, he'd had, or Colorado State, he'd had a, a frightening experience on a plane, and it petrified him so deeply he would not get on another plane. And no matter what they tried, they couldn't get him to get on a plane. They tried to coax him. They tried to kind of incentivize it. They tried everything. He would not get on a plane. And Billy Green drafted in professional basketball, professional football, professional baseball, would never play a professional game in his life because he couldn't overcome his fear. So his potential was limited because his fear was too great. Fear does that to us. Fear does that to us. And then it confines us. It, it confines us. Giraffes, I read this, that, that giraffes in many natural habitats, like, like we have at Bush Gardens. I don't know if this is true at Bush Gardens, but in many places like San Diego Zoo and places where they have these big natural habitats, you know that very often giraffes are not confined by fences or cages. They're confined by a six-foot-deep dry moat that will run the perimeter of the uh, habitat for giraffes. And it's not that giraffes cannot handle the incline of a six-foot moat. They're strong, powerful animals. They can absolutely handle it, but they won't because they're afraid to fall, because they're too afraid. So it becomes a psychological moat. It keeps them confined. And we have those. And that's what fear does. And that's what we start on the day of Pentecost with. A group of disciples that are confined by fear. They're in an upper room and they're praying and they're waiting for this promise of the Holy Spirit. But make no mistake, they're still scared. 
They're still the scared disciples. They were Now, they've seen the resurrection of Jesus. They know how things have turned out, but they're still governed by that fear that what happened to Jesus is going to happen to them. The suffering of Jesus is going to be the suffering of them. The fate of Jesus is going to be their fate. And so they're gathered together, and yes, they're praying, and yes, they're waiting, but they're scared. But the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The Holy Spirit comes upon them, and all of a sudden, those scared disciples who had denied Jesus and run for their lives and were holed up in this room, fear no longer has control. Fear no longer rules the day. And they begin to flood into the very streets that they were most afraid of. They begin to proclaim the name that they thought would get them arrested. And they begin to tell the story of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And the aftermath of that, as I mentioned earlier, is that 3,000 people came to faith and the church was born. And we're part of that legacy. We're here because of their faithfulness. We're here because when the Spirit of God came upon them, Fear no longer controlled them. And they were freed from that. And that's what the Holy Spirit does for us. It frees us from fear. It allows us to face our fear, but not by taping ourselves to a tree during a lightning storm, but by opening ourselves up to God's Spirit that comes to work within us. And it isn't the promise that life isn't hard. It isn't a promise that things, bad things won't happen. In fact, they were all afraid of dying for Jesus. And you know what all of those disciples did? Except for John, they died for Jesus. But what they realized is when the Spirit of God came, that death wasn't the worst thing that could happen to them because the same life that was in Jesus was in them. So they were allowed to face their fear up front. In many ways, they died up front. And we've died so that we can be alive to Christ. And if the worst thing you can do to me is take my life, then i got nothing to fear because Jesus has already taken care of that. And so it's not that difficult things or hard things or bad things or tough things are never going to happen. It's that that doesn't, that's not the worst that can because God has already provided for that. And so fear no longer rules the day because they have a relationship through the Holy Spirit with Abba. And we've talked about this. This is the term for God that Jesus uses and only Jesus uses. It wasn't part of the Jewish tradition, but it is a term of intimacy, of connection. It removed that stigma that God was an angry God to be appeased. That's what Jesus wants you to understand, that it's not this God, angry God that we bring sacrifices to to appease his anger, but it's a loving God. It's a father who longs to embrace his children to remind us, as we do for our children, there is nothing to be afraid of. There is nothing to be afraid of. A father that invites us to run in the, through the darkness into his arms. And that's what Abba, Father, means. That's what God does. It liberates us. And it is the power that is at work within us to free us from the bondage to fear. I, I read a, a quote this week that said, Many of us are dying between two thieves. We're crucified. We allow ourselves to be crucified between two things, regret for our past and fear for our future. And we name so often that Jesus has taken care of the regret for our past. He's forgiven us and set us free from the bondage of sin. We talk about that all the time, but do we also recognize he's liberated us to embrace our future unafraid, to move into the mission for which he's called us. That's the purpose, so that we can go forth to live the love and to use our gifts in a way that honors Jesus and loves others because God's spirit is at work within us. Came across a movie this week. I watched, watched it in portions on, on, um, on YouTube. And it's called The Bear. 
It's 1988 film. It's a French film. And uh, it's a nature film. And there's a number of narratives that, that are woven in it. I'm not going to get into the whole story. But, but the, 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 the deep thread is the story of this bear cub who, um, whose mother is killed in a, in a rock slide very, very early in the movie, leaving him orphaned. And um, as a bear cub in the wilderness, that's a, that's a dangerous place to be. That's susceptible to all kinds of predators. And that's what you see very on as this kind of nature um, story begins to take place and you begin to see um, a mountain lion that starts stalking the bear cub. And as this bear cub's kind of wandering, uh, he stumbles or he comes across a, a big male black bear. And um, the, the, the male bear immediately starts looking for mama because when they see the cub, you figure mama's not far behind and you don't generally want to tick off mama bears. But he realizes this cub is all alone. And at first he tries to shoo the cub away. Now, the male bear um, had been um, shot at by hunters and had been kind of a flesh wound, had been grazed. And so he's bleeding, had a wound on his side. And the little cub goes up as the bear's laying there and begins to lick the wound, begins to care for the wound. And in that moment, the bond is sealed. The adoption papers are signed. And this big, burly, black male bear becomes Papa. And throughout the story is a story of this bear, this father bear, teaching the cub how to forage, how to hunt, how to survive, and this relationship. Now, toward the end of the movie, and I said there's some other stories involved, but toward the end of the movie, they get separated. And um, so the cub starts looking for his dad. And he goes down to the, to the river, the creek, where he'd learn to fish, and he doesn't see his father there, but the mountain lion sees him. And the mountain lion begins to stalk and comes right up on the, the bear cub there. And they're, they're literally on rocks in the stream and takes a swipe and his claws catch this, this cub. And, and you just know it's, it's story over for this bear cub. He has no shot against this full-grown mountain lion. But in desperation, he does what he knows to do. He mimics his father and he blares his teeth and he swipes his claws and he lets out the biggest growl that a bear cub can muster. And it's not all that impressive of a growl, but he does, and he shows his teeth, and all of a sudden, that mountain lion begins to back away and retreats. And the cub is kind of stand, you know, there growling, and you can kind of sense this little cub pride as he thinks he's scared away this big mountain lion. And as he does, the camera pans around, and behind the bear cub <laughs> on all is Daddy. And daddy's there. That mountain lion saw the power, which was not the cub. It was the father behind him or the father within him. That's, that's our power. It's, it's our strength. It's the father at work within us that embraces us as his children and liberates us from fear. We all have fears. We all do. We need to name them. Sometimes we need to hear them, but we never need to be confined and limited by them. The gift of the Holy Spirit frees us from that. When we open our heart to that, fear doesn't become the defining factor of our lives. So name that, but allow God's Spirit to embrace you as Abba Father and to set you free. Amen? All right, let's pray. Gracious Lord, we, uh, we give our fears to you because you transform them. And you're at work within us to liberate us from that and to set us forth in the ministry and mission for which we've been called. We thank you for that. And we pray your spirit would speak that truth to our hearts today. In Christ Jesus, amen.